Hi everyone, I'm Brian Farrell, and welcome to We Are Many, a show about people working for change and how that work changes them in the process. Today, though, we're going to talk about something that changes everybody's life, having kids. While it's certainly not everyone's ambition, perhaps particularly so for activists, many of whom are strapped for time, stability, and sometimes even the faith needed to bring a child into such a seemingly violent and self-destructive world, there's no denying the importance of parenting. Yet, Unless you're a parent or planning to be one soon, chances are you aren't thinking about its importance very much. That was certainly the case for me, but then I started editing a column about parenting for Waging Nonviolence, written by Frida Berrigan. Her reflections on being a first-time mother, as well as growing up the daughter of two anti-war icons, offered a perspective on family that was not only novel and refreshing, but also felt kind of urgent for a world in need of people working to fix it. So, we asked Frida if she could expand her columns into a book. She did, and now that book is out thanks to publishers OR Books. It's called It Runs in the Family, on being raised by radicals and growing into rebellious motherhood. More on how you can get a copy later in the show. But first, let's hear from Frida, who spoke about the book and read from it back in December at a launch party in New York City. Here's my colleague Eric Stoner to introduce her hard to believe, but I actually first met Frida about 10 years ago this fall when I stumbled into the War Resisters League office for an internship. And uh, I was actually pretty awkward and a little starstruck um, when I first met Frida. Um, she probably doesn't remember that. But um, not, because I knew anything about, <laughs> not because I knew anything about her family background or history, but uh, I had actually read a lot of her articles kind of serious articles on U.S. foreign policy and military spending and weapon systems while I was in college and had used them in my college papers. So I just knew her own writing and was really excited to, to meet her. When I first started to learn about her own background, I was intrigued and had a lot of questions. One that always struck me was, you know, how did her parents do it? How did they live such radical lives and at the same time uh, raise such compassionate and thoughtful children? How did they not rebel and kind of like so many kids do against their parents? You know, why isn't Frida working on Wall Street or in the military? (laughs) Um, I I was really thrilled when Frida agreed to start writing this column for Waging on Violence about three years ago. From the very beginning, she had a very great voice, as we all know, in her writing and great sense of humor. Um, But when she finally started to turn to write more about the personal, about her family, and about being a a new mother and a stepmother, and kind of how do you balance a life of activism uh, with these new roles, she really struck a chord, I think, with a lot of readers. And out of that column has grown this wonderful personal book in which she answers a lot of those questions that I had about her unorthodox upbringing and about how she's trying to tackle parenting in her own way. And uh, even though I'm not a mother myself. Uh, <laughs> give it time. Give it time, yeah. Or a father. <laughs> um, 
I, I still found a lot of the a lot of the book just very moving, very relatable, very funny. Just laughing out loud at a lot of points, and um, I think that any parents in the room or people that are trying to raise children to be caring individuals to kind of go out and do something good in the world will really get a lot out of this book. And I'm just very honored to be able to introduce Frida. So, thank you. Thank you. So, uh, so I'll start towards the beginning, but not at the very beginning. Saturday will be the 12th anniversary of my dad's death. And I, I find myself checking in with his spirit and, uh, and with his presence, which I uh, see so clearly uh, in my kids, in my brother and sister, in my mother, and in uh, so many activists, particularly activists who spent a lot of time in jail with him. Um, and I'm thinking particularly of Mark Koval, who uh, is a Catholic worker uh, from New Haven, Connecticut, who just yesterday was sentenced uh, for an action at uh, Hancock, a, a drone site up in upstate New York. I know Bill was there, maybe others in the room were there. And so he got a year suspended sentence. He was looking at two years in prison for essentially a, a crossing the line kind of an action. Um, and, uh, and so there are a number of other people coming forward uh, with cases coming forward in the next months, including my mom, uh, for actions at the Hancock base and Bill. I don't know anybody else here. I think that's it. So, so, but I, I, I see uh, my dad in all of these actions. So I s thought I would start with um, a little bit about him. Dad was born in 1923 and turned six years old two weeks before Black Tuesday in 1929. The youngest of six brothers, he watched his mother welcome the travelers who crowded the roads looking for work far from their families. My father's own family was poor, but they shared what they had. These early experiences of poverty, of see, seeing a nation unravel, of experiencing whole communities forced onto the open road, marked my father and informed his approach to life. I didn't know my father as a priest. This is good. Some, some Catholic children do know their father. Um, yeah. uh, you know, this is good to one thing and then the other, as opposed to, you know, okay. the Catholics in the room are laughing. The old black and white photos of the handsome, well-dressed cleric do not fit neatly next to the grizzled house painter and working man I knew as my father. But I did understand my dad as a person struggling to be faithful, as one whose deliberations were studded with biblical insights. My dad's advice in every situation was drawn from his faith, which was lived, applied, practical, a discipline. His faith was never taken for granted. It was a tool he used again and again to carve hope out of despair, light out of darkness, and community out of alienation. In October of 1968, six and a half years before I was born, my dad was on trial, along with eight others, for burning and pouring blood on the paperwork of war, the draft files that sent young men off to Vietnam. They were called the Catonsville Nine, and he would be sentenced to three and a half years in jail. And this is what he told the judge. So imagine me, you know, he looks a little bit like me, or I look a little bit like him, but like a lot taller and like chiseled um, cheekbones and short hair and kind of a priest. And, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so. From those in power, we have met little understanding, much silence, much scorn and punishment. We have been accused of arrogance, 
But what of the fantastic arrogance of our leaders? What of their crimes against the people, the poor, the powerless? Still, no court will try them. No jail will receive them. They live in righteousness. They will die in honor. For them, we have one message. For those in whose manicured hands the power of the land lies, we say to them, lead us. Lead us in justice, and there will be no need to break the law. Let the president do what his predecessors failed to do. Let him obey the rich less and the people more. Let him think less of the privileged and more of the poor, less of America and more of the world. Let lawmakers, judges, and lawyers think less of the law and more of justice, less of legal ritual and more of human rights. To our bishops and superiors, we say, learn something about the gospel and something about illegitimate power. When you do, you will liquidate your investments, take a house in the slums, and even join us in jail. Again and again throughout his life, in courts all over the country, my father stood resolute and righteous before power. He would accept the consequences of his action without flinching. My brother and sister and I watched him walk into prison fearless and full of joy more times than we can count. He was a fearless activist, but he was also a father who made fearsome oatmeal, <laughs> flavorless hot muck designed to stick to your ribs. When it came to this particular abuse of power, my siblings and I played the impassioned activists, and he was the heartless and impassive judge. Uh, rather than be late for school, we ate the oatmeal, pulled our stocking hats low over our ears as instructed, he would watch down the hill for two blocks to make sure those hats stayed on. Try telling the man who does not blink at a five-year prison sentence that only geeks wear winter hats. <laughs> he was not having it, right? He just did not want to hear it at all. No? no? Geeks. Yeah. I'll show you geek. Um, so... There's a nice picture of Dad wearing a hat in here. And I, I love wearing hats now, but it, it took a long time. Now I, need, I want to cover my, all my gray hair with a nice hat. On December 6, 2002, sometime after dinner, Dad died. He died at Jonah House. With more than 30 of his friends, family, and community members were there. We had walked the last weeks with him. Each of us wept, probing the hole that his absence would leave in our lives. We stood around him and prayed cried and said goodbye. There was gratitude, too, that his long and painful journey was over. Uh, he had um, liver <laughs> cancer, uh, stomach liver cancer. He had cancer. It went very fast. We were all confident that we had gained a powerful advocate in heaven. The pine box that my brother and friends made was ready, beautifully painted by the iconographer, uh, Father Bill McNichols. We prepared the body and laid him in the coffin in dry ice. The wake and funeral were at St. Peter Claver in Baltimore, where Dad had served as a priest decades earlier. The night after the wake, we gathered around him one last time and nailed the coffin closed. I remember my Uncle Jim, my dad's oldest living brother at the time, driving nails deep with just two whacks of the hammer, in contrast to my own clumsy, off-centered pangs. The next morning was clear, cold, and beautiful. 
Dad was loaded into the back of a pickup truck, which for a house painter was a fitting purse. And my sister Kate, our sister-in-law Molly, and I rode in the, trunk, in the truck with him. Other people carried signs and banners as we processed the mile or so to the church for the funeral mass. I don't remember much of the service, but it was a strangely happy occasion. Dad was gone, but he was still so present in the room, uh, full of people who loved him. That presence was the theme of the eulogy that my sister and I wrote, which reads in part, he is here with us every time a hammer strikes on killing metal, transforming it from a tool of death to a productive, life-giving, life-affirming implement. He is here with us every time a member of the church communicates the central message of the gospel, thou shalt not kill, and acts to oppose killing rather than providing the church seal of approval on war. He is here whenever joy and irreverent laughter and kindness and hard work are present. He is here every time we reach across <coughs> color and class lines and embrace each other as brother and sister. We ended by saying thanks, Dad, for the lessons in freedom inside and outside of prison. Thanks to all of you for struggling towards freedom and for working to build a just and peace, peaceful world. Our dad lives on in you. I'm going to switch gears in a significant way here. As uh, many of you know, and uh, you know, Eric sort of alluded to this, um, New York City was my home for a long time. I moved to New York in the fall of 1998, and uh, I moved here to intern at The Nation magazine. And, uh, and through that uh, internship, met Bill Hartung, and, um, and then worked at the New School for uh, many years. And I loved living here, um, and I loved working at the World Policy Institute and producing, um, along with Bill and sometimes other people, some of the work that you know got Eric through college and gave him good grades and all that. And at the same time, I became deeply involved with the War Resisters League and marched and organized, had endless meetings, got arrested sometimes. And I left New York City in 2010 uh, after living for a brief time, uh, living and working at the New York Catholic Worker. And so I want to read uh, a little excerpt looking back on that period in my life. Back when I lived in Brooklyn, I commuted to work on my bicycle. Once I passed my mid-twenties, I spent a lot of time imagining how little my life would change when I had a baby while I was uh, riding my bicycle. Um, <laughs> you know, something to pass the time as I'm, you know, running red lights and yelling at uh, starstruck tourists on the Brooklyn Bridge um, who go over the line. There's a line down the middle. So they're supposed to stay on one side and we have the other side. Um, so I was living in Red Hook. Uh, a neighborhood that at the time was rapidly uh, gentrifying but still quite poor. I imagined myself riding the same route, uh, the same bicycle, um, with a baby somehow safely stacked on top. I was already carrying a lot of stuff with me. I had my work clothes, you know, my blazers, and um, I had my gym clothes because I, you know, you gotta, you know, I, okay, I have to stop doing the. I'm just going to read. Okay. <laughs> Work clothes, gym clothes, books, my lunch. I could just cram diapers, fresh outfits, toys, all the other things that a baby needs into my overflowing panniers. As I cycled and imagined, I saw toddlers and little kids riding with their parents, mostly a Europe European style in, their, in the front, and mostly with their dads, not their moms. Sitting in my office, typing away, answering calls, 
uh, I would imagine where in my office I would put the baby bassinet and the bouncy chair. In my imagination, the, my future in, infant would sleep in the bassinet, and I would nurse him or her, and then they would play in the bouncy chair, while I came up with new ways to argue for common sense foreign policy in which the use of force was a last resort. Perfect, I thought. Totally doable. <laughs> At the time, I was living in a series of dingy, neglected, periodically rat-infested apartments. And uh, Eric actually sent me a little, like, really rat-infested? Yes, really rat-infested. With a partner who worked incredibly long hours during the week, large portions of every weekend. This is the only uh, slightly mean thing I say in the whole book. Who's constitutionally unsuited for and adamantly uninterested in fatherhood. That was it. That's the mean part of the book. <laughs> um, we struggled financially despite having good incomes. Despite all of this, I saw a baby fitting seamlessly into our lives. Um, it wasn't that I wanted to have it all in an ambitious, striving kind of way. It was just that I assumed that I could have a child, children even, without my life changing at all. Some level, it was not so strange that I should think that kids could seamlessly integrate into my life. That's how my parents dealt with the surprise of children. Pack the bottle and keep on going to the meetings, the demonstrations, to the courthouse. All of our family photos from our early years are pictures snapped at demonstrations. There are no portraits against fall foliage backdrops at Sears. <laughs> there are no photographs where we all cozy up near the Christmas tree with steaming mugs of cocoa in ironically awful seasonal sweaters. We did not go to Disney World or water parks or the zoo or baseball games or on vacation. Like, ever. We resisted. This is how my birth was announced in my parents' book, The Times Discipline. Through Lent of that year, 1974, we mounted a series of direct actions connecting the war in Indochina with North America's support of tyrants abroad and with the war against the poor at home. Chilean President Salvador Allende had been assassinated with CIA and NSA support. This we exposed with the only demonstration held at NSA headquarters. Holy Week brought the first action in which actors face serious consequences longer jail terms, at the Vietnamese Overseas Procurement Office. Holy Week also brought the birth of Frida Berrigan, our first daughter. <laughs> Period. <laughs> Here is what they say about my brother Jerry. The ouster of American troops from Indochina in April 1975 coincided with the birth of our son, Jerome, <laughs> and with the initiation of our community's anti-nuclear work. <laughs> Period. I, I did get my own sentence. I, just, it was a, I got a sentence. He was sort of a parenthetical in the middle of those two other things. <laughs> it was not that our parents were not overjoyed that we had burst onto the scene. But as they celebrated, they bundled us up in the back of the old Volvo sedan and kept going. As Dad wrote, it is for the love of children that community gathers its witness again to speak publicly of truth, sanity, and compassion against a public scarred by a militaristic spirit and a state mad with corruption and bloodlust. Liz and I have pain, inconvenience, when in jail and away from the kids, 
But what is it next to the pain of those in the Ukraine or Armenia or Indonesia or El Salvador or wherever the superpowers grind their iron heels? So now I, uh, so now I live in, a, in New London, a small um, a community, about 30,000 people. And uh, I'm, uh, you know, I love living in a, a small community. I love being able to walk uh, places uh, with my kids. I love taking advantage of, of all of the resources uh, there, the playgroup and library and co-op. And I have a, a great group of uh, friends there, um, a lot of other uh, parents. And uh, if you're tired of living in New York City, there are uh, houses for sale. Really inexpensive, lovely houses. There's one uh, down the street from us, $145,000, four bedrooms. Um, <laughs> completely redone. It has all new appliances, one of those islands with the, the granite countercuts, all, all that kind of wow. stuff. And it is for middle-income people, uh, $80,000 in our community, middle-income. Um, so it's part of a, a, a program to get middle-income people to move back to New London. So talk to me afterwards, I get a commission. <laughs> if you move and I will bake you a pie, you come and be my neighbor. That's the plug, I had to kind of put that in there. Okay, so pivoting again, right? On one good Friday, I trudged down the side of the road carrying a small sign. I am waiting for you to shut down Guantanamo, the sign read. We were marching toward the submarine base in Groton, Connecticut, it's the submarine capital of the world, uh, right across the river from us. I was grateful for the orange jumpsuit that added a layer of warmth and the black hood uh, that blurred my sight. It was nice to not be seen. Usually at demonstrations, I like to be out and about. In New York City, uh, you know, where I was an activist with the War Resisters League and Witness Against Torture for 12 years, I often opted to pass out leaflets to hold a sign in the demonstrations. I even honed this outgoing, chatty, kind of aw shucks persona that helped me greet everyone uh, with enthusiasm and openness. Hey, take a leaflet. Yeah, hi. <laughs> but uh, New York City is not southeastern Connecticut. And even when the response was hostile and barbed in New York, it was brief. Even the biggest haters are in a big rush in the Big Apple. <laughs> you all know what I'm talking about. Yeah. In a city of eight million people, the person who tells you to get a job or move to Russia or who wants to behead all Muslims is probably not going to be pulling you over for speeding on Route 32 or taking your gas money at the local pump and munch. Um, what I was really worried about was the people I already knew, so I was worried about that, right? Like the kind of um, little backlash. But what I was really worried about were the people I already knew and liked who worked at the base, at the submarine base, or at General Electric, uh, which is a big military contractor in our area. I was not quite ready to come out as a peace activist. Until moving to New London in 2010, I had never, oh, this is the confession in the book. You guys ready? I had never been friends or even acquaintances with people in the military or people who worked as military contractors. For years, I have casually and professionally referred to them as merchants of death. I am a second-generation activist whose last name is synonymous with prophetic witness, long prison sentences, and military-related property destruction. We were not hanging out with army brats outside the local VFW. My dad was a veteran of a foreign war, but a repentant one. I knew lots of those, men haunted by their time in war, 
who were strengthened and healed by their resistance. But I didn't know people who saw the military as a smart career move or a chance for adventure or the only way out of poverty. And I wasn't likely to meet them as a pudgy 11-year-old wearing a t-shirt emblazoned with the message, join the army, travel to exotic distant lands, meet exciting, unusual people, and kill them. And I wore that t-shirt out. Like that was, that was, you know, that was my t-shirt. Um, now I live in a town that sees its economic vitality as dependent on General Electric, the Coast Guard Academy, and the submarine base. My massage therapist, okay, I have one, yep, <laughs> is a subcontractor at Electric Boat. He's a really interesting guy. Uh, my best friend's next door, new next door neighbor, right, who's now like a friend, you know, makes great beer. He also works for EB. Our old downstairs neighbors were in the Navy. When my car battery died, uh, this guy helped me get my car started despite and over top of my assertion that I totally knew what I was doing, which I, I did not. He was very helpful. Half the moms in the local, local La Leche League, all those baby-wearing moms who I'm friends with, all the playgroups that I'm a part of, half the moms all live on the subbase. Joanne Sheehan, who is somewhere in here, and my mother-in-law, the nonviolence training guru and longtime War Resisters League staff person, often says it's easier to speak truth to power than to speak truth to family and community. She has lived in this area for more than 30 years, and I am starting to understand what she means. It is a new thing for me to relate to people in the military across dinner tables, across church pews, and on street corners instead of just across picket lines. It's harder in many senses. It is easy to judge and condemn and decry. It is hard to relate and communicate and respectfully agree to disagree. My husband grew up here. Many of his friends at school were dependent on the military industrial complex. They moved around a lot. They would be in his class for a year while their dad was deployed to the Navy base, and then they would be gone. From an early age, Patrick developed the ability to relate to people from different backgrounds and different political perspectives and find common ground. Then I say a lot of nice stuff about Patrick. <laughs> Skip it. He's awesome. Patrick is a good sounding board and a great inspiration. How do I get the conversation started with my new peers, my new community? Hey, I notice that you're a really great father. Why do you work on submarines that could annihilate fathers and daughters? How do you sleep at night? Don't you see the contradictions between your life and your work? Or my favorite, when I was a kid protesting at the Pentagon where lots of people jogged into work, you can't run from nuclear war. <laughs> Patrick and, and most other small town activists would tell me, and do tell me, these conversation starters actually kill dialogue. <laughs> yep. So buy the book. I mean, it's just, it's brilliant, actually. Um, they tell me that empathy, compassion, and mutual aid are more effective. So I am letting go of judgment and conversion and starting with real conversation. And the kind of, the neat thing about this essay is that there's more to it that I didn't read, but that uh, it went around on the, like, the, the message board at my church. 
and uh, and a number of people came up to me and were like, I actually would really like to talk to you about that. I you know I did work at the sub base and now I'm retired and like let's talk. And so I have been really appreciating uh, those conversations. So and I am going to appreciate some conversations with all of you guys really soon. I promise. Promise. I'm going to just read one more thing and then we're going to stop. Okay. So this is this is from the epilogue. She came fast and furious. She was petite and dark. She screamed and caterwauled. She had a full head of brown hair. The pushing phase of labor was so fast, just a matter of minutes. What took me a long time, at least it, took a lot, at least it felt a lot longer than the minute it certainly was, was to recognize her as my baby, the one I had carried, nourished, and made room for inside my body for nine plus months. There was no mix-up at the hospital. She came out of my body at the foot of our bed, and when I first held her, she was slick with blood and vernix and all sorts of, like, really just gross goop, um, and still tied to me by this, also very disgusting, uh, long white cord of vein and archery. There was no denying her. It took us days to discover her name, but eventually Madeline, Vita, Berrigan, she and Gomer made herself known to us. Her eyes are dark blue, and she seems perpetually lost in thought, contemplating the big questions of the universe. Her brow crinkles, her lips purse, and I imagine that if I could decode her language, I would understand everything, all at once. When you are a stay-at-home mom, the world gets very small, as small as Madeline Vita's eight pounds, one ounce. Nursing and diapers and bits of baby puke when all of that is mastered, you get to add the rest of the laundry, the bills, the dishes, the groceries, the tidying up. I almost added meals to that list, but truthfully and thankfully, my husband does most of the cooking. I embraced this very small world with gusto when Seamus was born. Before having him, I was the kind of person who always said yes to almost everything. Plan this action, sit on this committee, give this talk, attend this conference, run this race, write this article, meet these people, take on this new commitment, be in these two places at once, and I would just say yes, 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 yes. After having him, I relished, reveled in, and rollicked with having created a demanding, holy, cuddly, and delightful reason to say no to just about everything outside my front door. I learned to love this small, domestic, mommy world. I learned that it was precious and finite. I learned that many mommies covet and crave and cannot have what my husband and I have chosen. I learned that saying no to a lot of big things meant I could say yes to my son, my family, my community, and that that is no small thing. But then, right when I was ready to say yes, yes again, yes to activism, to organizing, to a paying job, maybe, maybe <coughs> regular exercise, I found myself pregnant again, and life inevitably, and perhaps wonderfully, slowed down and shrank again. Taking care of a toddler and having morning sickness tends to narrow one's field of vision. Being a stay-at-home mom can be lonely, repetitious, and boring. There are two confessions in this book. That's the second one, but maybe lots of you know that. But in truth and upon reflection, it's not forever, and I am not alone. And we, the kids, me, and our world are always growing. In talking with other stay-at-home moms, 
I get the sense that our culture celebrates and hyper-validates uh, and commodifies uh, the contributions of stay-at-home moms while simultaneously making them invisible, value-neutral, and second strata. There are lots of magazines, advertisements, and inducements for us to be thin, fit, happy, and 100%, 110% there for our baby, but not a lot of encouragement to create and sustain a culture and a community that truly supports women as mothers. We have to make it up as we go along, and thank goodness we're doing just that. I'm ready to embrace this new phase of life and this new identity as a mom of two kids in diapers, the stepmom of a dynamic second grader, the wife of a social worker, and one whose world is small but demanding. I'm ready to embrace this new phase of life, knowing that the larger world and its universe of needs and ills will still be there when me and my, my little ones are ready to tackle, head on and with our full attention, the work of building a more just and peaceful society. In the meantime, that work is being carried forward by countless able hands and hearts, so many of whom are, are here today. It is not and never was ours alone. And I believe, too, that the love I lavish on those closest to me is large enough to heal some small but superating wound in the world. And that is how I end the book. And that is how I'm going to end right here. Yeah. Thank you. Now that you've been completely enticed into buying the book, let me tell you the best way to get it, by becoming a member of Waging Nonviolence. Starting at the $3 a month level, we'll send you a copy of Frida's book. We also have other books to give away if you join at a higher level. Go to wagingnonviolence.org support for more information. That's it for today's episode. I want to thank my colleague Eric Stoner, mother and author Frida Berrigan, OR Books, audio engineer Dave Tadashore, and musician John Vanderslice, whose music you are hearing right now. We'll be back real soon with another episode of We Are Many.